You're listening to episode number 64 of The Green Elephant. Hola, this is your host, Rico Verde, coming to you from the shores of Lake Chapala, Mexico. This is the third podcast in this series we're calling The Great 3.5% Climate Solution. We have been inspired by the groundbreaking research by Harvard professor Erica Chenoweth and Maria Steffen in what they have termed the 3.5% rule. They found that from 1900 to 2006, campaigns of nonviolent resistance were more than twice as effective as their violent counterparts in achieving their stated goals. In reviewing the data, they found that, in fact, no campaigns failed once they achieved the active and sustained participation of just 3.5% of the population, and lots of them succeeded with far less than that. I don't know about you, but we find this very, very encouraging. If you will allow me, I will start with the state of stabilizing the planet. Let's begin by taking an overarching view of the climate issue and what must be accomplished. In the last century, humans have transformed the planet. When you look out your window, it may not seem like it, but the Earth is a far different place than the planet you were born on. Let's pull back and look at the scope and scale of these immense changes and where we must focus now. The climate has been stable from the earliest history of humanity, all the way up through 1850. Suddenly it takes a sharp turn and the CO2 levels rocket up and the climate starts to heat up right after it. A consistent climate and CO2 levels over the last 10,000 years is the primary reason why human civilization has not only survived, but thrived. Pre-industrial CO2 levels were around 280 parts per million, or ppm, and today we stand at nearly 420 ppm. This is the reason many of the changes observed in the climate are unprecedented in thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years. And some of the changes already set into motion, such as continued sea level rise, are irreversible over hundreds to thousands of years. Every place we look, we are seeing the evidence of past inaction. We are going into uncharted territory. Our attempt to stabilize our runaway climate is, without doubt, the biggest concerted action in human history. As a group, we have never tried to do something of this magnitude before. This will be the most momentous change for humanity since the Industrial Revolution or the Agricultural Revolution. By putting it in that context, you can see how quite extraordinary a commitment to restore balance to the climate is. Over the past few decades, our scientific technology has advanced impressively, drawing on decades of meteorological observations, sophisticated computer models, and examples of past warming drawn from the geological record 
we have a much more sophisticated comprehension of the problems and solutions. Science is great for understanding the problem, but that's not what's really going to fix it. Scientists have already told us how we can resolve this issue. And the answer to that is having the political will and a mobilization of concerned global citizens to drive that will forward. Climate change is a crisis multiplier that has profound implications not just for our ecosystems, but for international peace and stability. It will compel countries to question their economic models, invent new industries, and recognize the moral responsibility that wealthy nations have to the rest of the world, placing a value on nature that goes far beyond money. There isn't a world government. Most people do not want a world government. You can't just go tell someone who's in charge of the world to just go out there and get it done. We must work with the institutions we have. And the United Nations institutions are far from ideal, but they are the institutions we currently have. In an earlier episode, we addressed the issue that getting the countries to work together on such a complicated task is going to be almost impossible. A more realistic approach would be for the countries who have been historically the greatest contributors of admissions to work together. This would include China, Russia, Western Europe, and by far the greatest cumulative admitter of all time, the United States of America. The U.S. bears a greater moral responsibility for the impacts of global warming and a greater imperative for curbing its carbon dioxide output. The U.S. should display global leadership in this international endeavor. This could be done by investing substantially in scientific research and technological developments, and more importantly, sharing that expertise with the impacted developing nations. Stabilizing the climate will require strong, rapid, and sustained reductions in greenhouse gas emissions. In the best case scenario, the world rapidly phases out fossil fuels, embraces renewable energy on a massive scale, and overhauls how humans work, eat, and travel. Effective and sustained reductions in emissions of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases would limit climate change. While benefits for air quality would come quickly, it could take 20 to 30 years to see global temperatures stabilize. Not only the wealthier nation states, but corporations, cities, and financial institutions need to prepare credible decarbonization plans. We are not only going to have to fulfill the commitments made at the Paris Agreement, we must exceed them substantially. In this section, I'm going to discuss protests, the types of protests, what are some of the major issues with protests, and what makes for a successful protest campaign. I want to be upfront. I have attended a variety of protests over the years, including multiple Earth Days, protests of the Vietnam War, 
and political protests, including one very memorable rally in 1968 when the avowed racist George Wallace was running for president. I have never been involved in leading or organizing any type of protest. So why am I so adamant about them now? In my 50 plus years of teaching and being engaged in these issues, I have concluded that from what I have witnessed, from researching solutions and considering the momentous changes of the planet, when enough people care and enough of them get together to do something about it, change is inevitable. Let's start at the top to what the characterization of what a protest is. A protest is a demonstration to influence public opinion, voice displeasure, draw attention to injustice, and share information calling for social change. There are three broad categories of protest. Number one, a peaceful protest, also known as nonviolent resistance or nonviolent action. This is the act of expressing disapproval through action without the use of violence. Number two, the other protest technique utilized is a step up known as civil disobedience. Disobedience being the key word. And number three, then there are more violent protests, sometimes called riots. I think we all know what a violent protest looks like. Destruction of property, burning of buildings and cars, attacking police, people attacking others, up to and including deaths. Remember, there is an ocean of difference between Greta Thunberg holding her sign declaring a climate strike to a full-blown civil insurrection like we saw on January 6th. I'm going to clarify the difference between the first two, nonviolent protest and civil disobedience. There can be some confusion because these two terms can be used interchangeably. What is important is the distinction between the two. Let's start with civil disobedience. A historical figure that advocated civil disobedience was David Henry Thoreau. He considered himself neither an anarchist nor a pacifist. Civil disobedience generally consists of protests that will engage in activities that are technically illegal. A prime example of an environmental organization that promotes civil disobedience is the Extinction Rebellion, or XR for short. They are the movement behind some of the boldest climate protests around. XR burst onto the scene in the United Kingdom in 2018 demanding that the British government achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2025. Thousands of climate activists around the globe have started XR chapters and have rallied in support. Their aim is mass civil disobedience, which they say is our only option for the rapid changes needed. They've glued themselves to trains, blockaded major bridges, and chained themselves to government buildings. They've launched street protests that brought parts of London and New York and Sydney to a standstill. They have purposely gotten arrested, thousands of them, all in the name of saving our climate. They say we can no longer rely on incremental reforms like those advocated by most environmental nonprofits. By getting many members arrested, they aim to overwhelm the justice system and draw media attention. 
Now, they are also motivated by nonviolence, and they have chosen this tactic based on Erica Chenoweth's 3.5% rule. Yet, for their brand of civil disobedience to work effectively, it must be able to disrupt the normal functioning of cities and infrastructure over and over again for long periods. This is an important distinction. The tactics used are technically peaceful, but they involve a lot of disruption in ordinary citizens' lives. Examples are creating traffic jams at peak times, or shutting down the London subway or tube. Without saying, these actions impact thousands of people going about their everyday lives. In another instance, XR protesters massed aiming to block the expansion of London's Heathrow Airport by flying drones into the airport's airspace. On another occasion, XR protesters scrambled up to the roof of a train and commuters dragged the protesters down onto the platform and beat them. Video of the incident prompted a massive backlash. Now, I will share with you that I admire the organization and support them. However, some of the protest maneuvers they employ are troubling to the general public. Many of these actions risk losing the goodwill of the populace. It's not as bad as committing acts of violence, but it can turn potential supporters hostile to your cause. For example, shutting down the London Tube while people are commuting to work in an environmentally sound way is counterintuitive to their cause. For that one, XR did apologize and the organization promised to redirect its actions and they now primarily focus on blocking businesses, financial institutions, and the government. An important question, do Extinction Rebellion's tactics work? Many have questioned the wisdom of XR's tactics since it began campaigning in earnest in 2018, but the group enjoys significant public recognition. Many have heard of the group, but their approval rating is low. A common criticism of XR has been that its tactics are alienating to the public at large. A major objective of any organized climate group is to not turn away potential supporters and sympathizers who could number in the tens of thousands. When publicly engaging in protest tactics, is it better to be well-liked or well-known? Extinction Rebellion leaders say every time they cause a disruption, they certainly attract scorn, but they also raise awareness of the climate crisis and get people talking about issues like net zero targets in a way that no other campaign has been able to match. XR would say their aim is not to win a popularity contest, its aim is to be effective. And now, peaceful nonviolent protest. Peaceful marches and nonviolent protest have a rich history of being exceedingly effective in accomplishing their goals. The key here is that they are nonviolent. Nonviolent, non-aggressive action is not simply the absence of physical violence, but includes the absence of verbal violence, intimidation, and property damage. The two individuals who are most responsible for the widespread and often successful adoption of nonviolence in the 20th century as a means of political change 
are Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. Both Gandhi and King believed that violence must be avoided because it potentially undermines the intent of civil disobedience. Both men believe that the ultimate goal of a campaign of a nonviolent protest is to achieve a new moral understanding with one's opponents. Nonviolent resistance works not by defeating and humiliating the opponent, but by winning the opponent's empathy and engage many new supporters. We can't emphasize this enough. The key is nonviolence. Nonviolence is our strength. Nonviolence is a superpower. The reason? Remember, we are trying to engage 3.5% of a population to join us. That means that 96.5% of the population is not. However, many in that larger group will be sympathetic to the goals of the active protesters. Peacefulness is absolutely strategic because if protesters are perceived to be violent in any manner, many in the majority will refuse to support them. The second you start getting violent, you lose moral authority. Also, it gives the opposition and detractors powerful images and reasons to challenge your message and turn the focus on the perceived violent acts. And this is crucial, and we are seeing it more and more. Violence can and will be visited on peaceful protesters themselves. The protesters must be willing to suffer violence in the pursuit of a movement's aims. If even a single protester strikes back after being attacked or assaulted, much of the media's attention will be concentrated on that single violent act. Peaceful, nonviolent actions are fundamental and essential. In the U.S., for example, there is a supermajority of Americans who understand climate change is happening, outnumbering those who don't by more than five to one, and they want the government to do something about it. So, you already have a ton of passive support for these issues. If you avoid violent confrontations, you can translate passive support into active support. People who are actively participating in the climate movement. Not only do peaceful protests arouse publicity, but they spark sympathizers as well, which is essential to success. And success in this case means nothing less than restoring the health of the living biosphere of the planet. Gonna lay down my sword and shield down by the riverside, down by the riverside, down by the riverside. Gonna lay down my sword and shield down by the riverside, study war no more. I ain't gonna study war no more, ain't gonna study war no more, ain't gonna study war no more. I ain't gonna study war no more, ain't gonna study war no more, ain't gonna study war no more. Not surprisingly, since we have started this series, listeners have been writing in with practical questions about how all of this is going to come together. People have every right to wonder concrete, real-world things like how are we going to accomplish this? What are some of the tactics involved? Who's going to lead this? What are some of our demands? 
Is there anything else I can do besides go out on the street and carry a sign? Do protests even work? Here are some frequently asked questions. Do we have to have millions of people turn out? Referring to Erica Chenoweth's examination of historical uprisings, 3.5% is the average of what is needed in uprisings since 1900. But sometimes major change starts with a lot less than that. It's not a linear process where you build up to 3.5% of the population and then suddenly everything changes. Make no mistake, organizing thousands of people to engage in peaceful protest is a huge feat. However, the active public support for this cause is probably many times the number of people actually turning out. You might get 50,000 people to turn out. We want to emphasize this. If these gatherings are peaceful and nonviolent, it will create more sympathy for the cause. So next time, 10 times that amount of people may come out and support. 3.5% of the population in the United Kingdom is about 2 million people. In the U.S., about 11 million people. That is the size of New York City. Could you imagine? You don't have to. On the first Earth Day in 1970, 20 million people turned out, and the population was much smaller then. And the best part? It was spectacularly successful. Another question is, do we all have to go out into the streets for months at a time and protest continuously? The answer is absolutely not. A climate campaign on the scale necessary needs support on a whole range of things. Active public support under the 3.5% rule can be measured by people showing up at events, persuading others to join the cause, acting independently within their sphere of influence, and critically, voting with the movement. It could include people who are simply voting for environmental issues and candidates. You would be shocked how many green-leaning individuals don't even vote. I know this sounds counterintuitive, but around 15 million super-environmentalists, meaning people who rank protecting the planet as one of their top priorities, didn't vote in the last few elections. I know it's hard to believe, but it comes under the heading of voter complacency. I have discussed this in detail in podcast episode number 17 or the corresponding webpage. You will find an organization that has dedicated itself to encouraging these super environmentalist individuals to get out and vote. And they need volunteers, another active support activity you could do. There are many other support activities that are critical to the movement. Here's just a few. Donating time or money to institutions and organizations that are working toward a solution. Being active on social media, signing pledges, and participating in phone banking or door knocking. Persuading others in your social circle, at school, at family reunions, on social media, or at work or church. Others can act independently within their sphere of influence. Lawyers taking on pro bono cases, preachers using their pulpit, entertainers writing songs, teachers using their classrooms, union members using meetings of their locals to advance the cause. 
Your role in active support can be volunteering housing and cooking meals at retreats or when protesters are from out of town. Outreach, community building, talks, trainings, teach-ins, and the list goes on. The giving of your time, whether it's one hour a week or 50 hours a week, toward the broader goal of trying to solve the climate crisis. On the Green Elephant webpage, we have assembled a substantial list of hundreds of active, popular support acts that you can engage in, including the most effective ways to influence your elected officials, greening up your workplace, climate meetup groups in your community, religious organizations demanding creation care, citizen science opportunities, hundreds of hands-on endeavors where you can meet like-minded people. On the Green Elephant webpage, on the top bar, click on a Call to Act drop-down menu and prepare to be overwhelmed with the opportunities to support the cause. Here's another pointed question. What are some of the protest tactics to be engaged in? So, how can protest movements make truly lasting changes? They need to be disciplined, persistent, action-oriented, and focused. Protests can make a lot of noise, but if they don't influence powerful people making decisions, they fail. But the research does find a consistent trend the longer and louder a protest persists, the more likely the government is to take action. The first priority is to be strictly nonviolent. That must be clear to all participants. Any violence will be in the news and alienate any potential supporters. Governments have access to thousands of police and soldiers. Any violent behavior will end badly and harm the cause. The goal is to build a movement so strong and so popular that policymakers can't ignore your demands. One tactic is to mobilize regularly. Research finds that frequent mobilizations lead directly to social change. One study found that every protest increased the likelihood of pro-environmental legislation being passed by 1.2%. Also, policymakers were more influenced by protests for which follow-up events and activities were planned than by one-time protest. A further critical component is to focus your message. Make your view as prominent as possible. Strong messaging is crucial for protest success. Studies have found that protests with clear and focused messaging are more likely to influence policymakers and secure social change. Remember, rather than vaguely trying to raise awareness, your protest should be identifying a problem and advocating for a clear and realistic solution to that problem. Another effective method is to combine protests with other tactics. Protests are powerful tools for creating social change, but they are not sufficient on their own. 
Protests are most effective when organizations have political allies and coalitions with other movements and organizations and use other mainstream tactics such as lobbying and voter mobilization. Environmental issues are impacting a whole suite of progressive concerns such as immigration, women's issues, and social justice issues for people of color. There is a big group of people who want to advocate for the same groundswell of values. The question is then how to channel that into meaningful political action. While protests are enormously impactful, they are not magic bullets that fix all of our problems. Many activists have become burned out and dropped out of movements and organizations that are one-trick ponies using protests as their one and only tactic. It's vitally important to work strategically together to accomplish concrete goals. The fact is, protests and marches are just the beginning. The whole goal of a protest movement is to create a political movement that decision makers, the people in power, just can't ignore. And protesters need to get creative in how to make that moment. During the Civil Rights Movement, people didn't just show up for a march on Washington. They had specific plans of action to put political pressure on politicians to address their concerns. There were boycotts, freedom rides, acts of nonviolent resistance, walkouts, sit-ins, and much more. These were specific targets of the protest movement that moved the needle. In a previous podcast episode, we spoke for more women in leadership roles and participation in the movement. One criticism of the current spate of protests is that they lack a leader. We are not sure if an effective protest movement needs a clear leader. In some cases, leadership can be detrimental because people tend to characterize attributes of the protest based on the leader. It doesn't need a leader, but it should have a clear direction. As an alternative to specific leadership, dynamic spokespeople and influencers can be extremely beneficial. Celebrities and public figures with large followings and public support are often effective at spreading a message. Where appropriate, it is useful to partner with these people to assist in gaining support for an idea or a movement particularly in a world that is increasingly reliant on and influenced by social media. Another important tactic, media coverage is a key factor that contributes to the success or failure of a movement. Media outlets often report unfavorably and untruthfully about protests, making it more difficult to garner public support for the cause underpinning these protests. It is important, therefore, to form strong relationships with journalists and media vehicles and spend time advising journalists on a cause, why it's important, and what rights protesters have. And finally, growing your campaign. It is very important to have fun, be creative, and keep a positive attitude about the valuable work you are accomplishing. 
If people on the street see that protesters are peaceful, respectful, and what a good time they are having, for example from activities such as music performances and group yoga sessions, this allows dialogue about the cause. To see a variety of people, from retirees to young parents with toddlers, scientists to city workers, teenagers to teachers, having a jubilant time not only increases awareness, but also influences many people who would ordinarily not have gone out of their way to join a protest or to join this one. I know, much of this can seem far-fetched, but honestly, taking in the scope and scale of our climate and ecological troubles, and considering only a tiny fraction of the population is alarmed enough to seize the moment, I can't think of anything else that will come close. Tackling the thousands of individual issues doesn't sound very promising. The solution must be able to match the magnitude of the problem. And it's a big problem. And what if it all worked? We all want a fossil fuel free future of clean air, clean water, and healthy children. We were hoping to end the series with this podcast episode. However, particularly in the overheated political climate we are experiencing now, there are powerful forces arrayed against any kind of progressive activity. We can't even agree as to whether we should wear masks or not. It may not seem like it to many, but the staggering energies of the atmosphere and the oceans being unleashed on the physical planet are going to be equaled by the gathering political storm that will be unmatched by anything any of us have ever experienced. It's important that we identify those threats and how to overcome them. That's going to be the key to shaping our climate positive future. Turn into episode 65 and make no mistake, this whole thing is going to be a hot mess. A good place to start on your journey to take back the climate and your world is the Green Elephant webpage. Go to the webpage and click on a call to act menu to reveal hundreds of action activities for you to create our bright fossil fuel free future. Visit us at bit.ly slash green elephant in the room. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash green elephant in the room, where you will find valuable information and links to everything that was addressed on today's episode and more.